Hi everyone and welcome to this week's edition of my Mind My Funk Show. My name is Sitawa Wafula and I am your host as well as the founder of My Mind My Funk which is a mental health resource hub that I founded in 2013 with the aim of providing people in Africa and Africans across the world with mental health information as well as linkages to support systems. One of the things that we do at My Mind My Funk is host a seasonal show show and this is our fifth season of the show and we are dedicating most if not all episodes to identity and specifically identity of African men and black men and looking at that in relation to their mental health. Today's show will see us go all the way to the UK and I'll be in conversation with Antonio who will be sharing with me his mental health journey and how some of the challenges he faced as a young person, a young man in the UK um, became a stepping stone for him to become one of UK's top mental health advocates and campaigners. So listen to the conversation I had with Antonio and I hope you learn a few ways to take care of yourself or a few ways to take care of the people around you, especially the men around you who might be struggling with their mental health. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you on this lovely Sunday evening. And uh, we'll start by you telling us your name and where you're from. Uh, thank you for having me. My name is Antonio Ferreira. Um, I'm currently based in London, in the UK, mm-hmm. originally from Angola and Portugal. So if you could tell us from all those places you've mentioned, Pick one place and tell us what makes that place the best place in the world. Because there's three to pick from. Yeah. I'm going to go with Portugal. Mm -hmm. Oh, now I'm going to take that back. (laughs) I'm going to say London because of its diversity. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. So we will jump into who you are and what you do. So, so I'm a student primarily. So I study psychology with cognitive neuroscience at the University of Essex. Aside from that, and probably more famously known for, um, I am a mental health activist and anti-racism campaigner. And so I use my lived experience of mental ill health to change the way the UK views and addresses mental health within racialized communities. So for many people who are listening, especially those from back home in Africa, racism is something a lot of people just hear about and uh, many may not have experienced at least directly so when you say you're an anti-racism campaigner what does that really mean it means that so i try to eradicate um as you and you mentioned uh, racism and its semantics from the mental health space you know looking at how we better deal with those from minority communities understanding those from minority communities and i guess putting well really disrupting current practices and policies to make them inclusive for those from minority communities. Okay. 
um, I think later on when we're looking at different tools that people can use, we'll look at what tools are there for minorities. But I'm curious, how did you get into this whole space of mental health? Yeah, I mean, I was very accidental. It was never something I intended from the from the get go to to get into. You know, I, I for me, I had many different ambitions, but. In studying psychology, I had a lecturer who said to me, you know, Antonio, you need extra experience to get into the world of psychology. You can't just rely on your degree because it's very competitive. And I don't know, that might have, that might be the case in other countries, but in, in the UK, it's, it's very um, prominent, that, that um, issue, that psychology is very competitive to get into. And so, you know, I said to her, at first I tried to argue, I said, you know, what if I just get a first in my degree, you know, I'll be fine, I can do it. And she was she was adamant that, you know, you needed extra experience, so, to make you stand out, I guess. And so to, in the nicest way possible, to shut her up, I went out and signed up to a mental health charity, a local mental health charity at the time, which was Mind in Hull and East Yorkshire, because originally I was studying at University of Hull before I transferred to University of Essex. And so when I signed up, you know, to any listeners, if you sign up to be a volunteer, you do get asked to volunteer. That was never my intention. <laughs> I was just, I just wanted it on paper to show my lecturer and, you know, go about my usual routine. And so I remember, you know, I got an email saying, oh, would you like to come tell your story at the university? And as I mentioned, you know, I never really plan to actually do any volunteering mm-hmm. and so I replied no I don't want to you know it's not my thing sort of yeah. um, response but in all my journey through mental health if there's one thing that I live by it's that you never stop at the first hurdle and as a human the best thing you can do is try so in the moment where then I unfortunately relapsed and had to return to London from home mm-hmm. um I signed up to National Mind, which is the bigger version of the local mind that I, was, I volunteered for at the time. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, simply I said to myself, I wasn't going to let that first opportunity be my hurdle that I never tried to overcome. Mm-hmm. And so, again, when you volunteer, you get asked to do volunteering things. So they emailed me and they asked, oh, would you be interested in telling your story at the Welcome to Mind staff induction day mm-hmm. and so of course this time I did I said I'll try it and I said yeah sure why not mm-hmm. and I went in this day and I told my story and you know the reaction that I got at the end was probably the first light bulb that this is something I had to follow through there were two special ladies who came up to me one of them said to me your story is so powerful you should you know you, you should follow through with this you could save a lot of lives mm-hmm. and the second person the second lady was you know inviting me to be a media volunteer exploring different avenues and so you know as it goes I gave it a go I tried it and probably the best thing I've done really because as I'd done that first um, conversation had that first conversation things just picked up and it was almost like a snowball you know it mm-hmm. kept rolling bigger and bigger and bigger and I found my purpose within it amazing amazing um I am curious, and I bet anyone listening would be curious to hear a little bit of what you shared when you shared your story. Yeah, so, you know, it, it starts off as a teenager. Um, again, being from a, uh, a black household or African household, 
there was a lot of expectation around education and achieving and you know just making sure you sort of were making your parents proud I guess in that sense right and so I'm the youngest out of five brothers which for me made me feel like I drew the short straw so you know from from primary school to high school to college university I always had this determination to be the best student you know to be the most achieving student and at times where that appeared to be determination and commitment to teachers friends it actually became an unhealthy pressure and unhealthy stress and an unhealthy expectation for myself that in turn was the start to everything you know, I, I experienced physical symptoms because of the stress I was going through and um, mental symptoms as well and so you know again with experiencing this we also have this tendency as black men to be over resilient and by over resilient I mean you know we don't show our vulnerabilities we don't speak of our weaknesses it's that simple idea of you don't complain about the task you just get it done and that's what I was living by but in doing that I was wasn't I wasn't looking after myself you know I was just putting education first you know making other people's proud first you know trying to just have people see me in a way that's really high and positive before thinking about how it's affecting me mentally and physically mm-hmm. and so my first you know first time getting attention for gross defiance was in high school and my parents my teachers picked up on this behavior change and was like you know is there something going on because aside from that I was always a model student if I had homework I'd do it on the same day mm-hmm. if I didn't have homework I'd copy out a book to improve my handwriting and so came this day where you know I got attention for gross defiance so it was like hang on a minute it's something mm-hmm. you know something going on with Antonio mm-hmm. and so my parents took me to my general practitioner from my general practitioner I was referred to child at the lesser mental health service mm-hmm. at child at lesser mental health service you know I'd never had any conversations about mental ill health. I'd never, you know, even looked into mental health, never, not nothing. And so I was unfortunately ignorant to it. And whenever I was asked by my psychiatrist, you know, do I believe I have a disorder or con- a condition? <clears throat> I always said, no, of course not, you know, boys will be boys. This is just how we are sort of thing. And on top of that, I didn't know how to explain mm-hmm. what I was going through too because as I said, you know, you don't complain about the task, you just get it done. And so to me, it was all about don't talk about it, get on with it. So when I'm being asked about it, I'm like, how do I explain? What do I say? You know? Mm-hmm. So then it came to a day where, as I described it, is that pressure, that expectation, that stress, it felt like I was carrying this huge rock on my back and this rock was getting bigger and heavier by the day mm-hmm. that I was getting closer to the ground and mm-hmm. unable to find strength to pick myself back up and so at the time it felt the only reasonable answer I had to you know get away from all this expectation pressure and stress was to take myself out of the world and so I'd planned to, to take my own life and on the day I planned to act on it something I done was I called my child at the Lesser Mental Health Service and I told him, you know, something is going to happen. I just wanted to let you know because, you know, in case my, in, you can let my parents know. Mm-hmm. 
then they asked me, you know, well, can we have your name? I said, no, because I wanted it to be an anonymous call. Mm. And then they asked me, you know, what about your address? I said, again, no, I wanted it to be an anonymous call. Mm. Then they asked me, what about your date of birth? At the time, I thought, you know, how many people share the same birthday in this service, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's fine. Okay, I can do my birthday. So I told them my birthday. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, and I mean, emphasis unfortunately, I was the only person with that birthday in that service at the time. <laughs> Which so is fortunate, went, but based on what you were trying to do, it was, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, as, I, as, as my plan was to go into college, make an have you know make everything look as normal as possible i remember i was sat in my first class today which was psychology and um one of the head of years one of one of senior staff i can't remember if it was a head of year or so, or so but it was a senior staff member mm -hmm. came into the classroom asking for me to come out of the class and you know i was surprised i didn't know what was going on and she sat me in her room and she said oh we've received this call from your child at the mental health service is everything all right at this point, <clears throat> I'm still trying to make things seem normal. So I'm like, you know, I think maybe I've just missed an appointment and they're worried about that. I don't know. And she was like, okay, you know, well, they've asked for you to come in. Your brother's come to, to pick you up. <clears throat> so I said, okay, fine. They excused me out of college for the rest of the day and I went to the mental health service. At the mental health service, I was sat with my brother who came to pick me up, my, psych my psychiatrist and my psychologist. And I remember at this point, I came to terms that I was experiencing auditory hallucinations. I was hearing voices because the way I describe it is, imagine you're in a concert, <clears throat> you know, and you have your friends next to you. And you're, you know, your, your friends are trying to sh speak to you, but they need to shout at you for you to hear them because the performer is the one you can hear the most. So the performer at the time would have been my voices and my friends around me would have been my psychiatrist and my psychologist and my brother trying to speak to me. So it was like I could very, very, very slightly, slightly hear them asking me what's happening, what's going on. But more so I could hear the voices telling me, you know, you need to do it now or you'll never be, um, get, be rid of, of this um, pressure and expectation and stress. <clears throat> and so in the room where I attempted to take my life, my brother, um, restrained me and then police and ambulance were called but there was no one injured so ambulance didn't have to come into the room unfortunately police carried on into the room and to cut I guess a long story short the police arrested me for a fray which in the UK is putting the lives of others in danger and you know my psychiatrist and my brother were arguing with police saying he was never you know, putting anyone else in danger by himself, did he need support? Not, not to be arrested. But you know, as it goes, as the story goes, unfortunately, I was taken to a police station, put in a holding cell, and then from the holding cell, I was escorted by the police to a general hospital. And from the general hospital, um, I was trying. I was, <clears throat> I was told I'd be going into a psychiatric ward, and the next day. Next day came, I went into this psychiatric ward, you know, not knowing what to expect, nothing at all. Um, but, you know, at first it was very, yeah, it was very lonely, you know, it was very overwhelming, all these negative emotions. But I learned to make the most of what I had around me. And so, you know, in speaking to other patients, 
I really came to accept my uh, my mental ill health, I, my mental illness. I came to understand mental health better. I, I you know, gained compassion from from that peer support um, towards mental health. And I, I gained my ambition as well, which was, you know, once I get out of this psychiatric ward, I'm going to go back to college and I'm going to go to uni to study psychology because knowledge is power, right? Before, when I knew nothing, I didn't know how, what to do or what to say. And so I told myself, I'm going to go and study psychology and I'm going to, you know, use that knowledge to help others in the same position as me, especially those who look like me and have no one to look for hope. Point. Yeah, to look for hope in. <clears throat> And so then we come to the story of, you know, my first time at university after being discharged from the psychiatric ward where my um, lecturer advocated for extra experience. I, you know, in trying to fool her, I actually ended up being a part of the volunteering, but as a result, loving it to the point where, you know, I really dedicated myself to being an activist, a campaigner, and got involved in some really huge projects like supporting EastEnders, um, portraying the, the storyline of a young black man in schizophrenia, um, being interviewed by the Prince and Princess of Wales on my mental health um, journey, also the awards, which I'm sure we'll get into later on, that I've gained. Um, and as well, I guess, just, you know, being able to see my friends open up to me as well now, it's, it's mm-hmm. been, a, yeah, a really great, great journey. Amazing. So I'm giving you a virtual hug. That's uh, thanks for sharing that and just taking us through um, the beginning and just the the things it opened up for you as a person and the things it's opened up for many other people. So as you were speaking, I was just noting down some things and um, yours is the best i would say uh analogy of uh, mental health mental ill health that i've had of uh, the huge rock on your back and how it keeps pressing you down uh, that analogy and the constant analogy and as i thought about it i was like yeah that really makes sense and i was like holding myself because i didn't want to cut you short but those two analogies I think bring the point closer home because if someone hasn't experienced it, it's hard to tell them because you hear people say, oh, you say you're hearing things. What do they sound like? You know, are you hearing them with your ears, like your physical ears, or are you imagining it? But then you putting it in the form of a concert, it makes, I'm still in this analogy and I'm running with it because anytime now I will be speaking and explaining, I'll be like, I know someone who told me this is the best way to describe. And so, um, thank you for those two sort of analogies and just sharing your story. And so I want us to go a little bit backwards and and look at, um, signs and symptoms and causes of mental ill health. Uh, you've talked about uh, that just notion of over-resilience. What would you say are other causes or issues that either you've experienced or with the people you've worked with, you've seen, or oh, these are some of the things, especially for African and black men, that cause mental ill health? I think culture, you know, culture, cultural bias is something you know it's almost like you know so i tell my story to you right Mm -hmm. but you're not aware of you know my cultural background my cultural upbringing 
in telling my story, I feel I also have to tell you another two, three, four more stories to make you understand that first story. Mm. So to that, that in itself is quite off-putting to people. As you know, in life, I think humans, well, I don't think, definitely humans prefer simplicity. And so when things become complex, that strays them away from even talking or opening their mouth. Yeah, yeah. And, and to cut you short, I can, I can resonate to that because I'm from Kenya and I'm in the US for school. And when I came here, um, I had, because I, already, I already struggled with my mental health. And so just the whole move and not having a community or family here uh, really made me um, go down. And so I had to go see a counselor. And I felt the same way that I was almost giving the counselor the tools that then they would give those tools back to me. And it almost made no sense to me to go see a therapist because I felt I'm doing the therapist's work for them so why do I need to go see them and so I I get when you say um, the the bias and and so if you're struggling and you need to and you know you need to go see someone but then the people you're going to see are going to make the work harder for you yet you want people to make work easier for you you almost don't feel like you want to go see anyone because you're like, I think I can do this on my own other than going out there and, and working harder, yet I have no strength. Because when you're going down, strength is one of the things that's very scarce. Yeah. Precisely, yeah. So that's, yeah, you know, that would, I would say is one of, one of the many main reasons. But I guess also trust, you know, trust is that comes into it as well because, you know, I think it's easier to to i guess open up to trust in someone who looks like you someone you can relate to whereas you know trusting someone who's almost not or does i guess it's very far from your background but also you know is analyzing and observing you is very in, in, intimidating um and then i guess some other reasons are just you know Am I worth the, the 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 treatment? You know, will I be actually um, acknowledged? All these other doubts, and I guess doubt is the biggest reason for anyone's failure, isn't it? So, you know, trust, cultural bias, doubt, all of these things, are, I believe, play a part. Thank you for that. And um, when you're sharing, you talked about not knowing how to say what you were going through, and so. Out of curiosity, how have you seen, or what ways have you used to make it easier for other people to be able to share, and not just to you, but then also to be able to share in the spaces? Because I bet when you do your activism, you're also telling people, go look for help or go to these places. But then how do you make it easier for them um, to be able to open up if there are any ways you're using? I think the first thing is, you know, to the things we're worried about are being judged. And I think the, the, the best thing in, that, in, in, in respect to that is to, is to accept that no matter what you say, where you say it, who you say it to, <clears throat> it's inev- inevitable to not be judged. Because as human nature is, judging is something we use for survival. However, what then changes is, you know, if I stop giving, if I decide to 
stop giving you a chance opportunity from that judgment I've made that is what changes but not to be so worried about being judged because it's something that you know inevitably will happen as human nature however we can determine what happens next after being judged right we can I'm sure there's been plenty spaces I've been in where people have judged me by, by my cover and then once I've started speaking they've gone oh wow I was not expecting that you know so it's okay it's I will be judged but can I change the reaction that comes after being judged that's something I always kept in mind and I guess it was I guess it comes into the idea of wanting to be seen mm. in a in a positive, you know, high mm. um, light, but using it in a healthy way. And then I guess it's just you know finding a flow in your in your language, finding a natural um, way of articulating yourself. For me, I was always you know really into quotes, and so as you, as we speak, you'll find this. But I use a lot of like poetic quotes and stuff to explain what I'm going through and you know some people music is easier to express mm-hmm. some some people are is easier for me it's that sort of poetic um yeah poetic way of explaining things that works for me you know and it's, again while I want to be looked at in a high positive light I also want to be comfortable mm-hmm. and you know I guess make sense of what I'm trying to say and so yeah you know finding your flow your rhythm and how you speak is is also something else I'd say and yeah and then you know practice makes progress you know you, you the more you practice speaking the more you practice you know talking the, the easier it becomes them you know the more you you sort of you fortify that connection towards you and speaking you know I through my journey through child adolescent mental health service to the psychiatric ward to being discharged into early intervention service to then adult communities um, mental health service there was can you imagine years of talking to therapists to psychiatrists yeah, to yeah. peers so you know that practice made it easier for me to find that rhythm that flow in my, in my conversation um, yeah those three things were I guess some of my biggest tips Okay, okay. Thank you for that. Um, you mentioned something that um, is also a big thing I know back home in Kenya, which is uh, criminalization of um, people who um, attempt to take their lives. And so what's the policy like in the UK? Um, if you could just tell us uh, who are not very familiar with that so that we know if it's just something that happens in some countries or it's something that's almost across the board. And so for us who are in the mental health space, now we need to start speaking up and saying, hey, people are going through something. They shouldn't be treated like criminals, but should be looked at like people who are actually suffering and going through something. It's a, yeah, it's a very, it's a difficult one in the UK. You know, we do a lot of charities, individuals, etc., that advocate that even using the word "committed" suicide or you know, uh, committing any of those should not be used because they imply that it is a is a uh, you know, it's a term that's outdated because it's no longer crime mm-hmm. to to act on on that behaviour. So. You know, when you see it, when you look at that side of things where, you know, people within the space are advocating for, you know, rather than criminalization, support, you know, even the language and terms are used. But then you look at the opposite spectrum, which is, you know, policing in the UK and how they deal with matters of crisis, because well, I guess 
you know there, there will be instances where crisis will involve some sort of violence mm-hmm. you know but the lack of understanding from that sense is what is the biggest problem you know so in, like I said in my situation because I was in the room with attempting I was in the room with a sort of with a, with a weapon I planned to use to take my own life because that weapon was there with automatically taking down a laws or a, yeah, a law spectrum rather than look at you know I guess acknowledging the other circumstances the other factors that came into it which probably would have made you know someone with better with more compassion think actually this isn't a law this should be dealt with in a lawful way it should actually be dealt with in a more so, you know so, uh, medical mm-hmm. support mm-hmm. Um, instrument I guess um, so yeah I, I, it's a tough one in that sense but in the UK you know as I said there are a lot of people who advocate for people in crisis being given the right support rather than to be made feel like a criminal because you know we, we think about all sorts of things like are people capable of making their own decisions are they able to think clearly are you know mm-hmm. what is going on for them know all these factors that should be considered which sometimes you know see are, are not are not for of okay so we'll move into challenges and also uh, look at some of the tools that you've used in your own journey as well as in your advocacy work i know you've talked about some of the challenges but looking at it from a broader perspective and, and not just um, narrowing it down to you, but then broader perspective in your advocacy work and also in the anti-racism work that you do, what are additional challenges? And also, as you mentioned, the challenges, what are tools that are already existing or that you think will be good to have um, when uh, we're speaking specifically about African and black men and mental health? So to look after my mental health and well-being as a as a young black man, I guess. Well, you know, I, so here's I was speaking about this the other day, you know, and this what I noticed is as as, a, as as you know, black men, we tend to overlook simple techniques that have been given to us because either we're ashamed of living them because of how they might look like to other people, or you know, we we have our own cultural upbringing which kind of it goes against those techniques those practices mm-hmm. or you know we just think yeah, you know it's okay I can do I can do this myself I can do it in my own way mm-hmm. so for example looking at diet diet is so overlooked you know and for me as well at the time I had no knowledge simply because of how far my stomach was from my mind I never thought there'd be a connection and you know <laughs> sorry I like that <laughs> how far your stomach is <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I never I overlooked that idea of diet and how that can affect my mental health, my mind, my mental state. And you know, if there was there's a story I told where my psychiatrist she asked me, you know, what's your diet like? And I was like, you know, probably having one meal a day and drinking a lot of fizzy drinks. She goes, how much fizzy drinks? And I said, I'm probably waking up and sleep, going to sleep mm. to fizzy drinks. And she was like, wow, like I'm going to make a note of that because that is probably contributing to your impuls- impulsiveness because of the amount of caffeine and so forth, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that is something that's very much overlooked. Um, then also, you know, things like meditating, mindfulness, 
um, tracking your 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 mood, you know, all all these things in your thoughts out from your mind and onto paper. To me, I guess that really like something like a week of a, a week perspective, you know. Like, what mm-hmm. am I writing my mood down, you know? Mm-hmm. Why am I mm-hmm. in my thoughts down? You know, what kind of man does that make me, that, that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you also look at sort of things like, I guess your support network, how we use our support network, because we're so, you know, wanting to be over-resilient, wanting to be independent, we're like, oh, you know, I don't want to ask for help, I don't need help, I can do this by myself, I, I've got this, you know, under control. Mm-hmm. And I guess as though some of it comes on to generational trauma as well, you know, as much, I guess, how, how do I say this, you know, what our parents teach us, you know, from, from young, to, from childhood to adulthood, that, yeah, that, that also contributes to it because you know I always saw my dad as this this I guess imagine like a statue right never will break you know always you know going power through you know no signs of weaknesses vulnerabilities you know as a child I never understood why I just understood that's how I want to be mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. that's who I look up to that's my role model mm-hmm. that's exactly what I'm going to follow and so you know that generational trauma came came in and it's like, you know, anything I go through, be like my dad, you know, mm-hmm. be that statue, mm-hmm. don't ever mm-hmm. break, you know, carry on and so forth. So, yeah, all these things, I guess, are contributions for black men in, um, in trying to look after their mental well-being because, you know, these techniques that we should be using, like meditation, dieting, sleeping, mm-hmm. exercise, speaking, you know, you, you know, breaking those barriers be- between generations, we're overlooking, we're not doing because, you know, of our background, of our upbringing, but these are the things that that will help look after our me- mental well-being, improve our mental well-being. And for me, once I came to accept all of that, I started changing my diet. You know, I, I tried to have less fizzy drinks, especially not as many as I wake up and go to sleep. Um, tried to have more than one meal a day you know i i try mindfulness slash meditating i i have conversations with my dad now you know when i'm mm-hmm. feeling down and low um my friends as well um and you know i try to be as active as well as i can as i can be and just keep a routine a schedule you know that's that's also really helpful and it helps you feel in control and it's as you say them they look like the little things but it's the little things that make um, a big difference and they go because as you say I'm still stuck on how fat the stomach is from the mind (laughs) 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 yeah but uh, we don't think about that there are a lot of things that we've sort of automated that we don't really pay attention to and those they're not even little things but we look at them as little things but they they stack up in into making something bigger so when we think of when people talk about self-care it's not even necessarily going to a spa it's just making sure that you're sleeping well you um as you say eating well you're able to be aware of what your feelings and emotions are and you're able to express them and i like the uh, suggestion that you give of constantly just 
talking about it, creating that narrative so that when you really have to go and ask for help, you really have that narrative and it becomes a lot more easier for you to speak it out. Um, you've mentioned your family a little bit and I just want to ask about stigma and family and if that was a challenge as we wrap up talking about challenges. Was, was there um, a sort of stigma associated with your diagnosis and your family um, how did they take it and how did other people view your family or was that not an issue for you fortunately I, very fortunately I was very lucky to maintain my family support you know my from my brothers to my parents that I always had the support even after my diagnosis and you know I know that's not a very common thing especially for you know, for, for for black people, you know, to still maintain relationships with family and have their support. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, I couldn't pinpoint why I was lucky to still maintain that uh, support for my family. I'm just grateful for it. But yeah, I never had that issue with stigma and uh, with my family. I guess the only, I guess what, what helped was, as I said, you know, building that narrative with my parents whenever I was going through something, I tried to make them understand it, so I'd explain it to them as well, and so, you know, they gained the bigger picture, as I gained the bigger picture too, you know, you know that simple revision routine of when you learn something, try teach it to someone so that it's in your head that's pretty much the, the technique I would follow with my parents and my mental um, um, diagnosis um, maybe, I think a lot more stigma came from friends than, it, than, than my family, I lost more support from friends than I did family um yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Oh, okay, it's good. Um, and I think that's something that other families should also embrace, even as we start moving into spaces where we are not making the person who's going through the issue also be an advocate, also be a teacher, also be all those things, that it should be sort of a family and also a community affair where everybody is sort of chipping in and not chipping in negatively because there are people who come in with all these um, negative explanations of what is going on, but then uh, being open to learn and listen and just taking it as it comes, but always being there to be that shoulder for whoever's going through um, a rough patch. Good, so we've gone through your journey we've looked at some of the challenges you face we've looked at some of the tools you're using now let's come to your advocacy work and the 20 million awards you've won for the work <laughs> i was reading and i was trying to write them down i was like you know what i'll just give him time to go through all of them so let's start from the very first one i i, I don't know if your very first one was the most exciting one but I think the very first time I got recognized, I was like, wait, I'm actually doing something. So um, tell us about your very first one and then your most memorable one. And then you can list as many others as you would like to. Yeah, my first one was uh, a Jack Petchy, uh, Outstanding Achiever Award from the Jack Petchy Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, as you know, as... as yeah, nominated and then announced to me and I guess I was yeah I was bloody excited I was like yeah this is cool you know but it was at the same time very unexpected because as I said you know the, the way I got into this 
world of activism and campaigning was very accidental that I never really expected much from it. I didn't plan much um, for it either. And so, you know, when I, when you finally, when you get some recognition, you're like, whoa, like, you know, something's going right here, you know, this is what everyone was telling you. You know, it's easy to be told something, you know, you're doing great, but then to be given something that shows you you're doing great, it's like, it sets in stone, you know. Again, I'll give you another analogy. Imagine you've got cement and you're putting cement, you know, as you're putting cement, it's wet and you're like, you know why you're putting, why you're putting cement to stick the bricks together, whatever it may be. But once it dries and it's, and it's, and it's solid and you look at the end result, you're like, wow, this is me. This is what I completed, you know, this is what I done, you know. So for me, it was, I guess at first I was, I, you know, and for up, I was doing it as a passion, as a hobby, you know, as I felt like something that needed to be done, you know, it had to, like, there wasn't, yeah, I just felt like it was a requirement, so I wasn't doing it out of being recognised or mm-hmm. wanting to be this, this figure or anything, it was just like, I went through it and I saw what went, what was going, what, what was missing, mm-hmm. and I, I felt inclined to take it up on myself to change that, right, and that's simply what it was for me, you know, if I can do it, why not, if, you know, change um, come, a, a marathon is complete from taking the first step, you know, and the change makers, the difference between change makers and I guess the non-change makers is that the change maker actually stands up mm-hmm. and says something about something that's wrong, you know, so for me it was like, you know, if, if not me then who else, so let me just do it, so yeah, I was well excited, I was, you know, and I definitely didn't expect the, the rest to follow as well, but it was really a really proud moment, I was, you know, over the moon and I guess it just it was it was a I took it as a sign to carry on you know continue you know it's you know you you cross so many hurdles mm-hmm. and you're given that recognition you know allow yourself to accept it and really make the yeah. most of it yeah 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 uh, before you mention other awards um do you still get relapses and also do they really bring you down or do you feel oh because i know for people who struggle with their mental health they have instances where it feels or things are going well and i am quote-unquote normal that life is quote-unquote normal and then something happens and it sort of dips you and so do you still have those highs and lows and if yes um do you feel you have a better quote-unquote grasp of things or do the lows really knock you out and you feel, oh, I'm never doing this thing again, but then slowly come back up? So, first and foremost, I do still have relapses. I've recently had, last year was my most recent, last year's summer was my most recent relapse. Um, and I, again, so, the reason I relapsed was expectation as an activist slash campaigner, right? And, you know, being this beacon of hope, it was like I couldn't show again my vulnerability. So it, mm. it was a repeat of the first time, but out of an educational setting. And you know, so in that, before that relapse, I did believe I had, and I, 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 I do believe I still have a good grasp of of my of coping of my coping strategies and my, and my mental health. But with anything, you know. It, it has a best best before day and expiry day and so mm-hmm. where I don't pick up new resources, you know, those old resources 
begin to start losing their effectiveness. And you know, as I said, as I just mentioned, the the, res- the first the main the first resources I gained were from an educational um, trigger. Whereas mm-hmm. now this is a now this, well, the most recent relapse came from a activist campaigner mm-hmm. um, trigger. It was like, how do I use the coping strategies I've learned from there to this? You know, mm-hmm. that expiry date. So I think things constantly have to be renewed or have to be constantly looked mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. um adapted you know but yeah in, in, in a nutshell i definitely do still have those relapses though i guess not as bad mm-hmm. as the first time uh-huh. 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 Good. so diana award <laughs> and other awards that have come along the way please share with us yeah so then you know came the diana award that one, yeah, I was, you know, once I won my first award, you know, I, I was in, and I was introduced to the space of campaigners, influencers, and activists. You know, I saw many with the Diana Award, and I thought, man, how cool would it be to receive a Diana Award one day? I think the year before, two years, I kept speaking about it to everyone, like, no, imagine a Diana Award, you know, imagine a Diana Award, imagine. And yeah. I remember the year I got it, I was I was becoming a bit worried because to receive a Diana Award you have to be within a, a, an age bracket. I think it's 25 and under or 24 and under. And I turned 25 last year, December. Mm-hmm. I won the award the, the July of the same year. Mm-hmm. So before that July, I was like, oh, I'm never gonna get this Diana Award. You know, I'm gonna miss the opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Then came the, no, the the announcement that you know you've you've been awarded the. Uh, a Diana Award, I, again, you know, I was over the moon, and I think as always, part to play to, you know, manifestation, you know, really spitting it out into the world, and I guess other people knowing about it really helped as well. Um, yeah, that one, I was really excited about that one. Then, I, I can't remember the order, now. then I came, then I got uh, the Campaign of the Year, which is the Janie Antonio Award for Rethink Mental Illness. Again, totally unexpected you know campaign of the year is a big thing you know so you're looking at 365 days 52 weeks so it's like wow out of so many campaigners in that whole year you know someone's recognized me as the campaign of the year again i looked at it as you're doing you're on the right path you found your purpose you know keep going continue you know there's nothing here pointing towards negative any negativity any bad energy you know there's only people here appreciating what you're doing and trying to give you finally your flowers for it you know then after that came i think it was emerging leader um i made it on the inside out leaderboard as an emerging leader um in 2022 yeah and you know that one i guess was was so was still unexpected, but because that same year I'd done my first campaign, there was and I won campaign of the year. I kind of got this idea that you know something was more was going to come. So when I saw Emerging Leader, you know yeah. I was still over the moon, but I was like, it makes sense, now. you yeah. know I, I get it. Now, so I think. <laughs> then after that came, um, I made it into MHP's top thirty to watch politics winner um and that was you know that's a very prestigious award it's a politics award very separate from activism and campaigning mm-hmm. you know so i was again so this one was completely 
I was shocked, okay. right? I was like, wow, like politics. Yeah. But what made this one special, and why I say this one is probably my favorite, mm -hmm. is because in studying psychology, you know, raising awareness, I found that raising awareness isn't enough. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and analogy, the analogy I, I say to I say to explain this is, the weatherman tells you tomorrow is going to rain, right? You're now aware tomorrow is going to rain. What do you do about that? You know, if you don't wear your jacket the next day when you go out, that awareness meant nothing. So it's about actually implementing action following that mm -hmm. awareness. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I want to go into government. I want to guide government policy in, in mm -hmm. um, health and social care. And so winning that politics award was like, yes, yes you know, this sure. is exactly what I want to do. It's exactly what I want to get into. And this is, again, that sign that you, you should you should do that. You know, you should follow that. Um, and I can't remember if there's any more awards. There, there's that, that many and that prestigious. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah, most Jack Petty won the Outstanding Achievement was in 2020 and the other others were all in 2022 last year so it was a very you know very grateful year a year of lots of lessons achievements mm -hmm. but also relapses and so you know i learned you know it doesn't rain forever but yes. you know when you when it does rain make sure you have that jacket to protect you, you know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think I'll be calling you every so often. I'm like, okay, what new analogies do you have for me? <laughs> I told you, I, I live by these quotes and it's just a poetic way of getting through life. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like what you've talked about with regards to the weatherman telling you what the weather is. Because even as we do this show, we're talking about all these challenges and we're talking about... Um, some of the tools that you are using some of the tools other people are using but then there's a need for comprehensive um tools that are available to everybody and for us who are advocates or campaigners there's so much we can do there's very there's just specific demographics that we can get to but then the spaces or institutions that have the power so to to reach more people and to make, you know, like when we talked about the criminalization, like to make it uh, decriminalized across the board and make sure that the police and the emergency services and all these institutions are able to work together in a way that provides support for the, the person who's going through something as opposed to, oh, this is a criminal act. We are going to follow our normal procedures when we're dealing with other criminals. But then being able to assess and say, okay, this is more of a mental health issue and this is how we respond in such instances and this is how we work with other institutions to make sure that this person has the best care uh, now and also as they go on with their life. So we'll catch up a little bit later and see how your political career <laughs> will be coming along. So now we've got it to the tail end of the show and we're going to do quick fire. Four easy questions and then you'll ask me one question at the end and then we'll call it a day. So... First thing that comes to your mind, they're all mental health related questions, nothing hard. Um, when you, if you were to have all the money in the world, what would you do for mental health? 
Oh, 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 easy question. That's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, First thing that comes top of your mind. I think I just, you know, I, I create more spaces, well, uh, spaces for people to feel they can go into and, you know, chill out, you know, speak about the mental health. Just more community spaces in different parts of the world, the UK, where people feel comfortable entering and just, you know, speaking and just getting away from um, their problems. If you were to create those spaces, who would you want to work with? Three people, any personalities across the globe. They could be famous or not famous. Three people you'd want to work with. First would be Kevin Hart because I feel like when you can laugh things away, you know, as, as soon any problem you have, as soon as you smile, that problem goes away. So away, sorry. So you know, him bringing humor into the space would definitely make people forget about their problems and just give uplift their mood. Um, I'd say Will Smith. I was very, very inspired by Will Smith and the movies that he does. He's very uh, profound, and I believe he'll be a great teacher um, in that space. And a third person. Um, uh, probably ooh, a third person um, I'd say you know what I'd say Cristiano Ronaldo I guess that's just the active part of things and that you know that determination to want to be, to be the best is quite influential and it'd be yeah I think it'd be yeah those three together yeah you have you know the humour the, 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 uh, the act, activist that active part element sorry and then you have um, the profound teacher or smith yeah because you're the one who's taken us here this is a bonus question <laughs> okay. how do you feel about the fact that arsenal <laughs> okay no i'm not going there <laughs> but when you i wasn't going to go there but when you mentioned ronaldo i was like yes yes i want to go there now <laughs> support do you feel you'd have offered yourself at the very onset of your journey i definitely would have told myself to follow my own dreams create my own path and not to be stuck trying to please others or live, live up to others expectations you know I, i'm you know priorities always got to be yourself and your health and so you know i would, I would have, that's the support giving myself just that reminder that you know think about what you want and you know how you get what you want basically okay then last question from me before you ask me a question and again i say please be kind to me i didn't ask you (laughs) any money questions so please be kind to me okay last question would be what advice do you have for african and black men across the world especially with regards to their mental well-being 
I think my my advice is to be, you know, as I said, don't be afraid to be judged. You know, there's, you know, use use us, me and you, as examples. That you know, in speaking out, there are more opportunities and there is shame around it. You know, if I hadn't decided to stop speaking out about my mental um, health, then you know, would I be the activist I am today? Would I be the campaigner? Would I have the awards I have? You know, would I had the opportunities I've had? So. Yeah, I'd say, you know, that's that's what I would say the advice is, you know, feel less shame about speaking up because there are opportunities, positive opportunities that can come. Okay, okay. Now, you ask. <laughs> I want to ask you because, you know, you've done a lot of different work in different places. What would you say is your most... The, the one project you're most proud of and where? Apple? Oof. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had one and then another one popped in and like, yeah. <laughs> pick me, pick me. Okay. I would say starting what was Kenya's first free support line. And because the support line um, was a text line, it allowed people who didn't have access to internet, who couldn't Google signs and symptoms or be able to Google um, places that would get help to ask questions. And we had, because we have like 47 tribes in Kenya, and we had people texting in, in English, in Swahili, and in other languages. And once in a while, I'd have to have someone else say, uh, do you know what tribe this is? Do you know what this person is trying to ask? And then for us to text back or call them and ask, um, I mean, to text and ask, can we call you? Because it's easier for us then to have a phone conversation. And um, we were able to get... I think over 10,000 texts in that past year and these are just people across Kenya looking for um, information and support and so that for me is the greatest um, I would say greatest thing that I've, I ever did and just stemming from the fact that when I needed help or needed information and support I didn't know where to go and so just having that opportunity to provide that for other people that that was good times it has good times yeah yeah and yeah, congratulations on that honestly that that's that's that is amazing i i wish i could have you know the strength you have to start such a thing in such a area that's really really needed and that support you know i feel like yeah maybe it's maybe i'll take a leaf from a book and try to explore you know yeah. supporting those in 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 africa and you know more areas where support is needed mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, good. good so we are done I had a lovely time but before we close the show please tell us how we can get a hold of you uh, especially people who are in the UK or people who maybe want to invite you to speak or give you yet another award so <laughs> where yeah, so, can we um, find you my um, website as it is on, on the screen is antoniafurra.co.uk um, I won't spell it out because it'll take a bit of time but um, also my Instagram will be the same thing it'll be antoniafurra underscore mh Twitter will be um, Antonio but you put a T-H-E in between the O and the N in my name 
I don't know if that makes sense, but if you manage to get it, Antonio, almost like Antonio. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that's you know all my spaces, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and my website. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Antonio, for your time. Thank you for the quotes. I have all my quotes written down here. Um, thank you for sharing your journey with us and also some of the uh, challenges you face uh, as well as the victories and the achievements that you've uh, we've gotten. I uh, definitely would want to touch base with you over and over again just to see uh, what you're working on, um, how we can work together and how other people can just be part of it. Uh, because as you've seen in your own activism, it's, it's not a one person's job. We, we need to work together, but we also need time to just get off the space and just take care of ourselves, but then have other people uh, who are still running things. So looking forward to learning more of what you're doing in future days, uh, wishing you well in school and in your activism and all that. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Recording stopped. So we finished recording. Um, let me uh, put the audio.